Hi everyone, and welcome to the Silvati's podcast. I'm really excited to talk to Nick Hanna this week. And if you don't know who Nick Hanna is, you're probably not on Instagram much, but um, Nick is a physiotherapist from Canada. And we're gonna be talking about all things communication, empathy, boundaries, and how that influences the way you practice. So thank you so much for joining me today, Nick. Mr. Sylvan, thank you for having me. And happy afternoon to you. Yeah, good morning to you. Um, And so the way we know each other is, obviously, I was first introduced to your content by Instagram, which I want to ask you a little bit later, because I really want to poach the graphic designer, aka your brother that you use. Um, But um, not only through Instagram, but then I also went on to do the mentorship program, which I definitely want to talk about um, a little bit later as well. So before I get into any of that, I want to get to know what a young Nick was like. Like, did you always envisage yourself going into healthcare and physiotherapy, or was this sort of a left-hand turn somewhere that came somewhere else? Yeah, wow, that, I've never been asked that in that way. So that's a really cool question. And I was reflecting on this a little bit because young Nick is far and away different from me Nick right now (laughs) so it's kind of a funny thing it's like well obviously young Nick is me and who I am now is me it's like how do you differentiate but I would say the big differentials between me when I was younger compared to now is that I was very shy and I don't know what happened to me Sylvan but I just kind of stopped giving a shit about what other people thought and now I'm just this outgoing extroverted in your face kind of guy and heavily sarcastic and I'll take people to the bitter end with jokes almost to a fault so as far as wanting to get into healthcare A lot of that decision, I think, was shaped by my own experiences growing up with sports and injuries and being sidelined. And I did have a few run-ins with physiotherapists, and I thought contextually it was kind of cool, like, here's a person who's supposed to, you know, help me get back to my sport and rehab my injuries and I always thought that was was kind of neat. So I knew actually fairly early on that this is the field that I wanted to be in. I think grade 10 is when I knew. And so everything thereafter was just strategically ensuring that I could get into physio school. And now that I'm out in the field, the things that you can do with this profession really I view physiotherapy physiotherapy as a scaffolding to be creative and try to serve people in very different ways and so now you know looking back on young Nick it's kind of funny how things land and 
where things end up because I would never guess that I would be doing a social media page and talking to people around the world and having people give a shit. It's, it's quite funny how things end up, but I wouldn't change it. I think it's great and I'm excited for things to come. Yeah, and you mentioned sort of wanting to go into physiotherapy from quite a young age. Has that scope developed and changed as you went through your schooling and then went into practice and then have developed your practice? Oh yeah, so my reasons for getting into physiotherapy were pretty naive, I think. You know, I wanted to fix people and solve all their problems and be this quote unquote hero of sorts. And I still wanted to do that when I first got into the field and having been practicing seven years now, it's funny to reflect and realize how wrong you are sometimes uh, or misguided maybe. So now the way I frame my practice and the lens within which I choose to operate is more from a coaching lens. And what I mean by that is more in the realm of health coaching or life coaching, which is really facilitating people to come up with their own solutions to their problems. And the behavior change literature is pretty robust on this. Like people don't change their tune just because we say words, just because we give them information. And that's a hard pill to swallow because we are so knowledgeable and we have such a, a depth of information about the body, about movement, about pain, about health in general and what's good for people. And so we think that if we just give people information, that will be sufficient. Like, oh, I've done the thing now. That's good. But in practice, unless you are living under a rock, you'll find out that that doesn't work at all. And so what coaching really offers is this creative co-collaborative relationship building process that allows two people with two unique backgrounds, two unique knowledge bases and two unique skill sets to co-create a plan that someone can actually implement or action on. And if you're not pulling the knowledge that they have or the solutions that they create for themselves, I just think you are going to end up coming short more often than not. And that's really frustrating. <clears throat> I don't want to see clinicians be frustrated. <laughs> I think the systems we operate in are frustrating and shitty enough. So I think at least if we can reframe our lens and orient ourselves differently in practice, it gives us a more, more of a freedom and there's this lightness and a weight off the shoulders that occurs if you choose to operate this way. So yeah, it's really neat how things change, Sylvan, but they have been changing for the better in my world, I feel. 
Yeah, and that's definitely one of the things that you impart, especially in the mentorship program, which I won't say too much. I'll let you talk about it more than me because, you know, I just went through eight weeks of it. But um, one of the things that definitely comes across from you is, one, you know, the knowledge, but also the co-collaboration that takes place and the openness to explore different things in ways that you might not have considered, or if you did, you don't know how to fully implement confidently. And that's what I really enjoyed throughout that whole process was it was this space where you could just play in a way. Yeah, that's beautiful. Oh man, thank you for saying that. That's so cool because that's what I want for clinicians. I, want a, I just want people to have a freshness in their practice. Every single person you see, it's a new chance. It's a new opportunity to do something different. And I, I just, it doesn't make sense to me to have this algorithmic cookie cutter approach. Like how fucking boring <laughs> is it? I don't know, maybe, I don't know if I can swear, but I'm gonna do it. So the, I just think we have such a unique position and we are doing ourselves such a disservice if we think that there is this right way to do what we do. And there really isn't. And, that, and that's why there are so many systems and so many ways to approach and everybody thinks they're right. And based on their own learning experience and their own uh, schooling or background, that's why they think their approach is the way. But if you just reverse engineer that and go the other way and think, okay, this person has a problem. They're incredibly unique. There's nobody else on the planet like them. How do we just dance together a little bit and find fun ways to create solutions and create a plan? Have them view their situation a little differently. And to me, that is, who gets to do that? that that's so cool. There's no, there, there are so few professions who, with each person they come into contact with, is a truly blank slate and new opportunity to do something unique. And if we approach it in the wrong way, it just gets so bland and boring. And then it doesn't solve problems anyways. So why not try and do something different? Absolutely. And that certainly comes across, especially with the content that you put out, specifically, you know, creating that therapeutic relationship. And I mean, coming from a psychology background or a psychological background, that wasn't something that was noted or taught or really talked about within my schooling as an osteopath. And to hear it coming from some other place was really refreshing. And in all honesty, that's probably why I followed you so intently in the beginning. In the beginning. Not that I don't know, I like a couple of us here and there, um, especially when my face is on there. Um, <laughs> but to have that acknowledged in the profession that I was studying and where not a lot of people were addressing it was so fresh and inviting and reassuring because it's all the stuff that I was trying to bring with me, but didn't know how. Yeah, yeah, that's well, well put. I almost view this, 
I, I had this thought the other day that we are pretty good at the movement stuff, the exercise piece and people's capacity for biological change, let's say, but often, and, and why I was so excited to have you on and in the mentorship was to pick your brain a little bit about the psychology because where I think people run into a lot of distress in practice or frustration is that there are these psychological ceilings that can get in the way of physical progress. And if you don't dance with that psychology a little bit, you're just always going to meet this ceiling and kind of waver around it. Whereas if you can work through some of those challenging conversations through honesty and transparency and, a, and genuine compassion, genuine giving a damn, then I think their capacity for physical change and the actual behaviors that they want to see exponentiates. And I think we miss that. And we, we wonder why things aren't changing. And a big part of that is what happens in here because people have these things called minds that have thoughts. <laughs> and more often than not, it's not always the case, but thoughts are a huge driver of behavior. Sometimes it's the opposite. Like I'm not painting a, I don't want to be so black and white with it, but I think what we do, and I want to be clear here because people often misrepresent and say like, oh, Nick, we're not psychologists. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So, so but, you know, speaking about thoughts and identifying them and asking questions and seeing if those thoughts are serving them well, or if they are having the intended effect that they wanted, or if they are getting in the way, or if they're true, absolutely true. Those are things we can absolutely explore. And listen, I'm not sitting down and being a cognitive behavioral therapist. I get that. But just pointing it out and having people question or see things slightly differently can be what matters in the end. And so, yeah, we, we can't be we can't be so afraid to talk about thoughts and beliefs and feelings. Like, I don't know why, but it seems people are scared to do so. And when you think about it, we're just people. We all do this stuff. We all get in our heads. And it's certainly fine to, with permission, have conversations about it. Yeah, and you know, you said we all have thoughts, we all have feelings, they all intertwine, they're all enmeshed. And we're all people at the end of the day, like you said. And I feel like a lot of that comes down to the way you communicate with somebody or the way you're able to build a rapport with another person and literally taking it out of, you know, from the context of the mentorship. It's, it's a communication mentorship. And so I wonder where that came from initially to develop that, but also why 
the emphasis on communication and why it's so important in that relationship? Well, communication is our scaffolding to understanding the world. Like the words we choose to use, they create a big part of our context. They shape and impact our relationships. So if you listen to the particulars of a word choice somebody uses, you get a bit of a peek at the way they think about something, a topic. And again, the way they think about a topic gives you an idea of their understanding of that topic or tr truthfully, the lack thereof, quite frankly. Because if you sense there is a poor understanding or any doubt based on their word choice, that's gonna drive uncertainty. And we all know that humans love uncertainty and that's gonna reinforce just hopelessness, despair, threat, these perceptions of danger, nervous systems on alert. And, you know, in our field, it can reinforce pain. So really what I think I'm saying here is words are this, the scaffolding with which we make sense of the world and a big part of how we build our belief systems. Like here, as an example, let's just, Let's play around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a word or two at you. Okay. And I want you to tell me just the first, just the shit that comes up into your head. We'll just play it at random here. So when I say the word unstable, what do you think of? Mental processes, mental thinking thoughts, um, a lack of clarity or structure. Okay, cool. Yeah, wow. So very different from the way that I might choose to think about it. When I think unstable, I don't know why I just think of the game Jenga. Oh, that's way more fun than what I said. <laughs> I wish we had rehearsed this now. No, I'm not going <laughs> to rehearse. That defeats the purpose. So, but you said lack of clarity, right? So you can imagine, but imagine that if I'm, if I'm your physiotherapist and I say that you have a joint that's unstable, you might think, oh, like, what does that mean to you? Like, tell me, what, what does oh. that mean? Um, it's dangerous. Mm. It's, you know, it's going to hurt. Yeah, absolutely. And so what, what if I were to say, just reframing that through more of a lens of what I'll term realistic optimism. So your joints are needing control. They're needing more control. Then what do you think? How do I get this control? Yeah, cool. So there... Bingo. So right away to thinking about solutions, thinking about actions, right? Not thinking like, oh, I'm screwed. More thinking towards, okay, what can we do to action on this that's going to change my circumstances? Perfect. You want to do one more? Go for it. <laughs> okay. What do you think of when I say 
degenerating? Oof. Lifelong, untreatable, debilitating. Yeah, cool. Just spiraling down, no way out, unchangeable. Whereas if you were to reframe that as, oh, just normal aging, then what do you think? Cool, we can handle that. <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm gonna get older, that's, that's inevitable. So I guess the point is here, if words and communication are shaping our context, building our relationships, forming part of our understanding, our scaffolding to sense-making and beliefs, they really form an inseparable part of our experience and our overall perception of our worlds. So, and we, we see this every day, Sylvan. You and I know, know this so easily. Um, just the other day, I saw someone with a pretty nasty episode of acute back pain, low back pain, which we know is more often than not very okay, very normal. Yeah. And this person was frightened. It was intense. They were, I was exploring some thoughts and they were fearful of a lot of things. And when I went through my assessment and sat this gentleman down and said, this is a lot of pain right now. It's a very tough spot you're in, but I just did as thorough of an assessment as I can do. And I could not find anything that would suggest this is going to be an ongoing problem. It's my belief that you're going to be just fine. That sentence completely shifted his world. And if you are paying attention in practice, you'll see it. Right there is a simple example that shows that the words we choose to use and the phraseology within which we build our context completely shift the outlook of a person. You could see the weight come off him. It was amazing. So choose your fucking words thoughtfully and carefully. And also, don't be so naive to think that because you, in your great glory and wisdom, have said words, that somehow now this person gets it. You need to also check that they actually understand what you're saying. So, I think when I reflect on these little things I noticed in practice, I just thought, this is my jam. This is the stuff that I love so much about what we do. And I want that for other clinicians. I want them to just feel the power and the privilege of getting to do that. And so I was like, I'm going to build something. I got to do it. And that's where Communicate came from. Amazing. And that genuineness, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, but that genuineness absolutely comes through because week in, week out, you know, you send ebooks, you send podcasts, there's learning resources, there's 
um, you know, ways to check in with yourself and with you and other people that mean that you're held accountable, that you're held and you're supported in that way. So that it's not just a, here you go, here's some information, go off and see you later. It's, it's a constant check-in. And that's what I think I appreciated from the mentorship was being able to hold myself accountable because I'm not gonna lie, I probably forgot a lot of stuff, but then coming back the next week, I'd be like, oh no, I remember this. Okay, cool, we're good, we're good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's a very natural building process to it. I've set it up, I very much set it up as a journey. Like this is where you start and this is where you end up. And then I cast you off <laughs> back into the abyss. <laughs> With more questions. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's why I keep you around in the community and keep seeing you guys on a regular basis. Exactly. It's why we keep emailing you and sending you DMs. Yeah. Um, and a lot of what you were talking about before in terms of the communication, I think, boils down to empathy. And that's, I know, something that you talk about um, and you have talked about previously. And you really distinguish between different types of empathy. I wonder if you could maybe explore that a bit more with us. Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot, there's few, some people who break it down even more than I do. I like to just dichotomize and, and make it simpler. I think there, there might be several types of empathy, but I'll differentiate here. The, the two I talk about in the mentorship are emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. So emotional empathy really at its simplest is feeling the same emotion as another person. As an example, and um, this is a kind of a serious example, but it paints the picture well. So if you're sitting next to someone, let's say a close friend who's just told you that a close family member of theirs has passed away and they're breaking down and crying, you will take on that sadness with them, <laughs> whether, whether you like it or not. Like you'll feel your heart sink there will be your own relative distress in response to their pain. And this is something that happens automatically. Like, so if you're a human being, <laughs> maybe not a sociopath or something, you will, you will experience emotional empathy on the regular. Uh, and again, this happens automatically. So Whereas cognitive empathy is more of a deliberate skill. And so the, the simplest way to define that is more of a trying to tap into the idea of placing yourself in someone else's shoes for the purpose of gaining a better understanding of their circumstances. So we often refer to cognitive empathy as this perspective taking piece. Interestingly, my thoughts about empathy are evolving and even beyond what I would have taught you in the mentorship. And yeah, wow, I'm starting to question some of its utility. So where I am now, Sylvan, is I think where we need to be in practice is to use cognitive empathy. I mean, Emotional empathy will happen, but you don't want to get stuck with that. You just want to be 
sitting and crying together. <laughs> so it's a bit, it's a bit unproductive, let's say. So, but I very much think now cognitive empathy needs to be used as a tool. So we also can't get stuck with this either. And here's, here's what I mean by that. So let's say if we use an analogy, metaphor, whatever, let's say, <laughs> trying to think of one, let's say somebody falls down a well. Jeez, I don't know what year this is. This is like the 1600s. Cognitive empathy would uh, very much be used to imagine exactly what that person trapped in the bottom of the well is going through. So they're fearful, it's dark, they're, they're scared, probably panicked, uncertain of how the hell they're going to get out of there. It's cold, damp. So these are cognitive uh, empathy skills. Now, so it's very much like jumping down in the well with them. Okay. There's a problem there. If you are just down in there with them constantly, then you're also screwed, right? So you're, you're not going to get out of the well if you're just down in there with them. So in a sense, you have to zoom in and zoom out. You have to use the skill set as a tool of validation as a tool to accurately capture the understanding of another. Because what it does by validating and showing that you've captured their experience as accurately as you can, and again, we could debate how accurate you can really be there because it's, it's finite. It shows that you give a shit. It shows that you care. And we cannot proceed with a plan of care until someone's been validated. And we all know, Sylvan, like how many people have you seen that have not experienced that validation piece? They're just dismissed. And it's right to solutions. It's right to here's what you need. And so again, where I am now with cognitive empathy is, let's use it as a skill. Let's validate the experience of the other. And then we got to get out of there because once they know that they've been validated again, this is what builds trust. It's trust that showcases you're on the same team, same tribe. And if you're on the same team, there's more willingness on their part to listen to what you have to say and to become actionable and to actually make plans that matter. So the point is don't get stuck. Don't get stuck with empathy. My esteemed colleague and mentor, Jim Millard would say that empathy is the gate, but compassion is the way. So we cannot be so naive to stay in empathy. And that, that is where I am now. You need to put that on a poster, Nick. <laughs> I will. Maybe I will. <laughs> but it's so it's it's very true. I think we don't actively, you know, dissect some of what we do day in day out, and we all have these tools and we all use them, but we're not acknowledging the different sort of caveats of it. And I like this zoom in, zoom out sort of approach because, you know, as you say, you go in, you you build that rapport, that trust, but you 
you have to zoom up because you're, I hate using this word, but you're the expert in the room. You're the therapist, the practitioner, whatever you want to call yourself. And so you have to sort of create the structure, create, allow the change, create the structure in, in which the change is happening. And you can't do that if you're in the well with mm-hmm. them. That's right. And also I would argue that for people who are in, let's just say a bad way and going through some really tough times, like to what degree can you really truly perspective take and put them or put yourself in their shoes? It's finite. We know that. Again, like I'm a privileged dude. I don't understand what it means to be, you know, low socioeconomic status with 10 comorbid conditions, you know, trying to figure out what to do with my next hour, let alone my next day. How much can I accurately understand that? It's going to be finite doesn't take away from the need to try to do it because by trying to do that again, it's showcasing that you care. It's showcasing that you're trying to understand and validate what they're going through as much as you can before that compassionate piece takes over. And we think, okay, here we are now, where are we going? Absolutely. And it draws parallels for me to when I was working in mental health and in psychology where, you know, I was delivering, you know, one-to-one therapy or group therapy and and you hear a lot of difficult things. And for me, sometimes back then, it was very hard to draw that line where that therapeutic boundary sort of existed. And so often I would, you know, leave the hospital, take that with me and then ruminate that, ruminate about that afterwards or Mm. look up studies or look up interventions and it would sort of almost take over. And I wonder, yes, what we hear as physical therapists, however you want to describe the work that we do, um, might not, you know, I was working with people with psychosis at the time, so maybe not not to that extent, thankfully, Um, hopefully as well. but I wonder how you're able to draw those therapeutic boundaries and how you're able to maintain those within the type of work that you do, but not just dealing with patients or clients, but also in terms of delivering information to sort of mentees and things like that. Yeah, wow. It's, it's so individual, this, this process of finding boundaries for yourself. And yeah, wow. I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what you would have gone through there. Yeah, to go home and be thinking about people all the time. Certainly not sustainable. <laughs> so not, not very healthy. I, I, it's interesting because as much as I, we just talked about empathy, I don't think I'm a natural empath at all. Like I, I think I have this unique ability to just shut it off if if I need to so for me drawing the boundaries between you know when I'm done with my client I'm done with my client for that day seem I I've not actually ever reflected or thought about it because it happens so naturally but I do teach that little bit of a reframe or a refreshing process the grounding mechanism in 
the mentorship where between clients, you do need to do something to reorient yourself and make sure you're ready for the next person in a neutral way. So in other ways, you can't let the intensity or the emotions or good or bad from one interaction bleed into the next. And so my own process is just four deep breaths, a little bit of a, a mindful practice, and then way I go. And I do that similarly when I, when I end my day. So I want to know more from you, though. When you were working in psychology and realized that you were bringing some of these interactions with you, how did you, uh, how did you become more aware of that? And then what did you do? Because I realize I'm not really giving much, much in the way of solutions to this. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't often get asked questions on my podcast, so this is very strange for me. Um, <laughs> I suppose I was aware of it happening because I was delivering, you know, CBT therapy, for example, with an individual experiencing psychosis. So that was, you know, very apparent where they would discuss, you know, seeing hallucinations or hearing voices. And, you know, so that was very apparent. I suppose I was really lucky in the structure of the team I was working with in that I had regular supervision. So I'd always take it back to supervision. Um, it was suddenly distressing at first and really alarming at first. And then you almost strip that back and not in a way to dismiss what they're feeling, but you strip it back to the person in front of you. So, I've got someone in front of me and this is what they're experiencing. It's not what I'm experiencing with them. And it, it sort of ties in with what you were saying earlier in a way. And so I think being able to remove myself from that and take it to supervision, talk to, and I was really lucky. I was always supervised by psychologists, just great free therapy every week. <laughs> I'm taking it. Um, and so being able to do that and then, in a way, I learned to not, because you never become desensitized to some of the stuff that, you know, we're exposed to even within the work that we do, but you learn to, okay, when I leave the hospital, I leave all that behind. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. then that's, it's a different, it's different time. I was thinking of those time zones, like I've yeah. left the hospital, I'm driving home, I'm in a complete different time zone right now. So that doesn't, bleed into that as much yeah that's a cool that's a cool way to think about it so a couple things I heard there one was you had a good support system so you, it wasn't just you feeling like you had to take this on and and navigate in isolation which again we all that's how we orient ourselves as humans like we're social creatures we work as villages not as individuals so that's cool. Another thing I heard was you in session were not taking on and processing. And yeah, you're, you're right. Because what I teach is not to take on the problems individually. It's not up to you to solve that. In fact, it never is. And so you're almost just, your process was bringing it right back to the person who's the person in front of me and what I teach and sort of the, the meeting in the middle there is 
the asking questions and trying to see where they think their capacity for change is. So yeah, that's neat. I, I agree that that if you operate in a coaching sphere, let's say, you do take on less because you're trying to put it back on them constantly because it truly is the, it's it's them you they're the one that that have to go forward and you're just there as that guide you know maybe making suggestions or asking questions and seeing where that will lead and in that sense it's not up to you and then if you don't find a solution that's okay because it's not up to you and then you don't have to feel as bad but i still think we have a tendency to just fall into this fixer role that we have to solve the problems. And so your discussion about working in psychology and operating that way, of course, that's going to bleed boundaries. And you probably were just running into the ground a little bit. I can imagine it's a difficult, it's a difficult clientele to see though. Like, I don't pretend to know <laughs> what that's like. It was fascinating and so rewarding. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned was, and I agree that often, you know, as practitioners, we can work in isolation. You can sometimes work as a sole practitioner. You don't really work as part of a team. And one thing that I've noticed a lot is sort of, you know, burnout in the profession. Um, and not just sort of professional burnout, but empathy burnout as well, which is slightly different, but it almost blends together. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you've experienced that, not just yourself, if you've seen that around you and sort of how you acknowledge that and what you do with that. Yeah, wow. It's such a... It's such a complex, personal, multivariate problem. So I think what we tend to do with any complex problem is try to narrow things down, right? Like we, we try to put factors into boxes and make sense of problems. But I think with any complex multifactorial problem like burnout, we need to maybe do the opposite. Like, I think we should think about these things expansively, not, not deductive. So I, I put burnout <clears throat> into all these different domains, right? Like there's, well, let's just go into it. So I'll take a stab here. So let's take a stab at it. What are some reasons that people might run into professional burnout? Well, an obvious one might just be lack of energy, right? You, you, your work is just having you feel exhausted or tired. Uh, all the time when you leave, you're just like toast. <laughs> you go home and you're just a zombie. Uh, so energy is a big one. I think fulfillment is is a huge one that is probably missing for a lot of people where work just doesn't seem meaningful or important. Something that I've come to realize a lot is this there, there's often an alignment piece to this where 
your work is not aligned with who you are or your values as a person. And that's a huge one. And related to that, I think is, it's gotta, you, you gotta have a sense of belonging. Like you have to feel like you're part of a community doing something important. Um, what are some other reasons that people burn out? Just not feeling appreciated. Like if you're, if you're not earning what you wanna earn or you're not acknowledged for what you do. Gosh, I think health professionals in general just never hear. You did a good job today. <laughs> it's like never 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 it's like so i think inherently unappreciated uh and then i think too just there has to be like there has to be some sort of aspirations that fit within your work like you have to have some potential there if you're not growing or feeling like you have autonomy or feeling like you have control over your development, then of course you're going to just spin your tires. So I think those are categorically like some big reasons. And again, there are probably thousands of reasons why people uh, burn out some, some other ones that people are, probably not honest with themselves is that they've got some shit going on in their lives, maybe outside of work that they're bringing in and that relates to energy and, and fulfillment, but we won't go there. So here's my advice. I mean, I've thought a lot about this shit a lot and a lot of it actually lives in my mentorship because you can imagine that my building of that was incredibly fulfilling and rewarding and it's just growing and I cry at the end of every mentorship because it's so overwhelming this feeling of seeing some other person grow and understand the impact that they're now going to have in their community and the people around them and you know we have so much potential to impact the entire world that way like if, if you think about your own social network and then that person's social network, the expansiveness of that is so cool. So what I would suggest is one, assess your energy level. So you got to know what things give you energy and you got to know what things drain the shit out of you. And if day to day you're doing more things that drain you than give you energy, then well, reassess that and figure that out related to that is figuring out who the hell you are and I smile because so many people never do the work to understand their unique qualities what are your values like what do you care about and once you know what those are then find those out and there are lots of free resources I know the uh, I think he's a, a sports psychologist, Michael Gervais. He does the Finding Mastery podcast. He's got a he's got a course about finding your values. Go do it. Do that. Uh, assess your personality. You know, and you, we can debate about personality and its utility and validity, but figure out what kind of personality variables you have so you can understand 
what kind of roles that you might have more success in. Like I'm extroverted. I'm not very agreeable. <laughs> so I should probably do something on my own, build things on my own. Then figure out, okay, so you know energy, your values, who you are, kind of understand thyself first. Then figure out what do you give a shit about? What's, what are you passionate about? You, you don't really choose your passions. And some people say to me like, well, I don't really know what I'm passionate about. And I'm like, well, then figure it out. Like experientially learn, go and do stuff. Take uh, an honest look back and reflect on how you felt after doing certain things. And a pretty good indicator of that is if you are working on something or doing something and you lose track of time, meaning hours go by and you are in a flow state, probably something you're passionate about. Probably. It's usually a good indication. Then, okay, you know what you're passionate about now. Well, what are the problems in those passions? And bonus points, if you can take several passions and intersect them and find where the problems in those intersections are. Okay, now what? Okay, you know what the problems are. Pick a hard problem. Why? Because it's got to be hard. It's got to be something that's worth working towards. There has to be an enduring quality to what the hell you're working towards. If it's not, if, if you're just doing easy shit, then what's the point? So you pick a hard problem and reverse engineer the problem to find solutions to it. So right now, there are going to be things that you're well equipped for and you're trained for and there are going to be knowledge gaps okay learn where the gaps are and know what you're good at so then reorient your day so that every single day you are working towards some sort of actionable step that is nudging towards that solution so if your current work is not aligned with that then you need to be strategic about planning your exit. And I'm not being so like, please, for the love of God, don't think I'm saying just quit your job. I'm not saying be careless. But if your work is not doing it for you, you need to realize how short life is. Oh, yeah. So you need to be strategic and start building something that satisfies all those things I just talked about. It's 2022. You have every resource available to you to get shit done. And this is kind of, I don't mean this as cold, but nobody's coming for you. Like you, you need to take responsibility for how you feel in your life. And if you're not feeling good, then change it. And really, this is so full circle because that's really what we do. So we, we like to pretend that we are so different from our clients, right? But not at all. Like, we're the exact same. And so that, again, I've 
thought a lot about this, Sylvan, and that is Nick Hanna's solution to burnout. Again, if you're dissatisfied, if you are not fulfilled, and get to work and start building something. And find the joy again. Yeah. That's what it was for me. Gosh. Like just play. Like find, like we, again, hard problems are stressful, but you need to find the creativity and the play in that. And again, it like, and I'm dead serious. Like if, if you watch this year, like I'm building something right now, I've picked a hard problem. I've thought about things that I'm passionate about. I've created intersections. You're going to see it. And I think it's really special and really cool. It's going to be stressful to me. It scares the hell out of me. And that's exactly how I know. It's the right move. It's the right thing to do. Let fear be your compass. And go for it. You have nothing to lose. Nothing. It's all good. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think for me, it was, you know, I experienced burnout very quickly from graduating, which I was not expecting because the expectation of working didn't match what I thought it was going to be. And then I wasn't working in a way that I wanted to. So I wasn't using, you know, all my psychological skills and my talking skills. It was just, you know, you've got like 15 patients back to back. There is no time to do any of this talking and exploring. And and I was operating in a way that didn't feel true to my value to bring it back. And I think that's where the mentorship helped in a way. It was realigning me to how I like to treat and what I'm really good at. I'm good at talking to people. Yeah, you are. You've you've got a a really nice, I mean, you English folks, (laughs) I mean, you've got a, just a lovely, well, you're, you're, you're very enjoyable to talk to Like that's, but there's a, even just the way you sound is lovely. It's like, oh, I want, yeah, I want to talk to this. I want to talk to something. But that that means so much. I'm so happy to hear that the mentorship was in part a rediscovery of values for you. Like, and that's not to say it was easy to then implement. It was <laughs> it was so hard because I'd been doing this cookie cutter style of treating for what a year, two years at that point. And then to try and re-pivot and reorientate, I was like, I don't know how to do this. And you do because you work at it, but it's even harder to then change that or start implementing that change because you change the paradigm in which you treat and that's, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it can be, it can be a bit of a shock and you're right. We conflate simple with easy Simple is very hard. Sim- to do things in simplistic ways is abundantly difficult. So, yeah, to, to reframe the entire lens within which you practice is presented very simply in my mentorship, but it's immensely difficult to do. So, 
I'm just thrilled that you are in many ways finding the strength of the strengths about who you are in your practice again. And I agree it's in finding those strengths, we gain confidence again and, and a, a sense of satisfaction with what we do. We can go home, reflect on the day and put a stamp of approval. Like, yeah, I, I did my best today. <laughs> Whereas with the cookie cutter approaches, I think we, can get lost a little bit and think that it's the right way because sometimes some of that stuff might land and, and work out with some people. But again, the more you practice, the more you realize that you can't do that. Like you have to, you have to frame your plans of care and interactions individually because you're working with an individual. Again, sounds so simple. It makes so much sense when you say it, but in practice is very challenging. And I really liked what you said earlier is that we are not that much different to the people that we treat. Um, and so how do you build your clients or your patients up for that kind of success, the way you would treat yourself or how you talk yourself into success? Yeah, but I mean, it. there's several arms to that. It, it starts with, it start, again, it starts with the understanding, the validation and, and trying to build trust and, and rapport with a person because if they don't trust you and they don't think that you truly have their best interests in mind, then they're not going to listen to you. <laughs> so, So that's a big part of it. And then we talk a lot about in the mentorship, like we had great discussions about setting up expectations and particularly roles and responsibilities. And here's what my role is. And this is the way I see myself. And here's how I see you. Uh, what do you think about that? Gives you some clues as to if people are ready for change or ready for the rehabilitation process, because it's a process. and it's not as simple as people often expect it is. So in building trust and setting up expectations, then really forging commitment comes from assessing, again, how motivated they are to, to change, how, how do they actually think they can change? Like, where's the effic efficacy piece to that? So, once I've gathered all that information, then the way to create commitment is just what we've been talking about. It's about asking questions and having clients lead in the decision-making as far as what they think they can do. You know, you can lay out some options, but let them choose and let them take it. And then the, the piece we miss is, is exploring how things went. So, okay, you said you were going to do this. And how did that go? And what things came up? What came up for you? And then they might have done well, or they may have done a terrible job. And then you can explore where the barriers are. And then you can have discussions about solutions to those barriers, or maybe a reorientation to what they need to do next. And again, that's just what it is. So 
But again, what I think we miss is creating commitment has nothing to do with you and your knowledge, right? Again, don't be so grandiose in thinking that you've got the knowledge and that's enough. It's really not. They have to tell you what they're going to do. And if they're the ones creating the solutions to their own problems, that's how solutions become stickier. Not from you, from them. And if you reflect on your, your practice day to day, you think, okay, am I the one giving the solutions or are we both involved? Simple question. If you're the only one, they're gonna, they're gonna fall flat. They're, they're not gonna be committed. They're, they're not going to be actively involved. And if they're not engaged outside of your walls, then they're not gonna see change. And then they're gonna think, oh, well, this doesn't work. This is useless. And then they're gonna stop. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, pr the process. It almost makes me jealous that I don't get to see you in person as a patient because it almost feels like this, you know, really welcoming sort of environment where you know you're going to get taken care of, but you know you're going to have to put in just as much work as a patient. It's not just a one-sided sort of relationship. And that's what I really am getting from, you know, the way you talk and the way you treat. And I suppose it's stuff that I want to start continuing to emulate without being, you know, Nikana too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please don't be anybody but yourself. So, uh, <laughs> no, I can't do your accent either. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my, I'm wondering then, you know, you pour so much into things like the mentorship to social media, which you haven't even touched on, and to patients or clients. What, inspires you where do you derive your energy from hmm. yeah it's it's weird man i i have so i have two brothers and i don't know what, what it is about us but we have this I think it's just who we are, Sylvan. We, we have this innate, almost obsessive quality to us that whatever we're involved with, we are obsessive about and work really hard at. And I, I, I don't know that you can, I don't know that you can teach that. So the inspiration is, it really comes from this essence of wanting to leave it a bit better than where you found it. And I think there's no more fulfilling way to live life. And I, I think a lot about life and how, and I think a lot about death in a weird, like not in a morbid way. I I just think, the way we use our time needs to be very intentional. And I think a lot of people just waste it. And 
then something happens and, you know, game over. And I think we we feel like we have all the time in the world. And I think, don't get me wrong, I think life is sufficiently long. <laughs> so, but I just think my inspiration is just innate. Like I, I want, I want people to do better. And both, both my clients and my people, my colleagues. And so that's why I do the mentorship. That's one prong of my serving other colleagues to do better. And the thing I'm building now is like client oriented and it's like, I want them to do better. So I think if I circle back to what I was saying about picking a hard problem, like that should sustain you in the face of adversity because shit will inevitably hit the fan at some point whether you get sick or injured or family stuff or whatever, adversity is coming. So you need to have something to ground you and to work through that. And I think it starts with having a really hard problem to solve, but then that needs to be bolstered by what we've both talked about today, which is this village of people in your life that are there to support you and see you do well, like want nothing but the best for you. And so taking care of yourself, taking care of your close relationships and your people, and also working hard to solve complex, challenging problems is where I think my inspiration comes from. But it's so hard, man. I don't know. I don't know why I do what I do. I just, I do it. Yeah. And that sense of support certainly comes across, especially like not even before you enter the mentorship. You know, I think if I think back, I was meant to do it like almost a year ago and I signed on and then I sent you an email and we're like, hey, can't commit. And you were like, no problem, man. Like, I'm doing it this time, maybe you can join the next one. And so that support initially when I hadn't even signed on, like that came across so effortlessly and so almost lovingly that I was like, okay, next one I'm on. And when I saw that sort of, you know, that Instagram post that you always put up, you know, with the wait list and I was like, okay, I'm good, I'm ready now. And so even cultivating that to then, you know, the phone call that you have with you to make sure it's something that's right for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you feel that support throughout the whole process. And even afterwards, like I still email you and send you DMs and things like that. You know, I'm just waiting until we get really buddy before I can send you TikToks, but I'll work up to that. <laughs> <laughs> but, and so my question to you then, is where do you see yourself sort of developing? How do you see your, your own practice going forward? 
before I answer that, I, I just want to say, I mean, thank you for sharing that. It, it's, it's, um, yeah, it hits home, right? Like, it, cause I, I don't, you never know, you never know the impact you have. Like, cause uh, I mean, I like, to me, I'm like, well, I'm setting up phone calls to make sure that people are right for the mentorship, the mentorship's right. Like I, it's almost like an afterthought for me, but then hearing you say, it's like how important that is and what it means for you is that's cool, man. I, I appreciate it. It's something I should reflect more on, I think, but yeah, where am I going? I mean, hmm. <laughs> so maybe if I can interject there, if that's okay. Yeah. Before, please, because... please. That call felt, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to give you a call at this day and this time and such. And I was like, why? I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And I was like, oh, is he going to like talk me into this? And it was just the opposite. It was like, I just want to get to know you. Yeah. And that's how genuine it was. And I was like, oh, this is not what I expected. Yeah. And yeah, then no, I was okay. like, take my card. I'm good. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, it's it's not about exactly. It's not about. There's no coercion of sign up. <laughs> the, it's really it's really me just putting together a community of people that selfishly makes sense to me, but I I know is going to be do do well by you and serve you as well. So it has to be again one bad egg can ruin the whole thing. So so it's very intentional, but. Uh, as far as where I'm going, who knows, man, I, I just, I'm developing and growing my coaching skills, my communication skills as much as I can. Here's a life hack for you. If you think you're not so great at something, ironically, that's one of the reasons why I built the mentorship is that I don't think my communication is where I want it to be. If you, if you don't think you're very good at something, teach it and practice it. And I promise that is the biggest life hack to, to getting better at something I could possibly offer. Just teach it and you'll be consumed by it and, and love it. And so I'm developing those skills as much as I can. And like I said, trying to build a couple different I've got my my colleague facing business in communicate. I want to have a client facing business in something I'm working on now. And and who knows? Who knows where where those things lead? I would never have thought that the communication thing would take off. So you just make decisions and and react accordingly and see what the next day brings, honestly trying to do better by just enjoying being enjoying here enjoying now so not to be too future oriented but also real realizing you need to do that somewhat in order to reach goals but it removes a, a layer of uncertainty to your future which is healthy for you mentally but um and yeah people keep bugging me to do something like this like what we're doing, I certainly would love to do that. But again, I, I know where my energy needs to be now. And so that would be a nice additive bonus to maybe do a podcast or something silly like that. But 
not yet. Yeah, I can see you having a podcast. I don't think I would talk to anybody. That's the weird thing. I think I would well, just talk shit. But then again, you probably don't need to. See, my whole caveat is with this podcast, I just talk to people smarter than me and then <laughs> pretend I'm just as smart and people come up to me and be like, oh, that was a really good episode. I'm, I'm like, I know, I didn't say anything. I just got other people to talk. It was great. Um, <laughs> but that. I think what, what's really great about the work that you do is that it transcends professions. So you don't have to be a physiotherapist. You don't have to be an osteopath. I think if you're in any type of role or profession where you have to talk to people, I think this is something that's going to help. So I just want to thank you for developing it, for keep to for, for keep doing it, but also just for spending this time with me and just talking about it. And yeah, this has been a little, little therapeutic for me. Yeah, oh, of course. It's it was a no-brainer, Sylvan. I'm I was so thrilled to have you, like I said, and something that I mean, you you here here's the funny thing we do to ourselves here. We you said I interview people smarter than me <laughs> okay <laughs> so that's some bullshit but uh when we had our phone call for the mentorship i was feeling all the imposter syndrome like holy shit he's background in psychology psychologist and now osteopath right osteopathy mm-hmm. and university lecturer i'm like what I what does he have to learn from me so I guess the lesson there is everybody's got something to teach you don't be so don't be so hard on yourself you you can have a major impact on someone else in ways that you would never ever imagine if you just are brave enough to do it do the thing yeah it's all a ripple effect so the stuff that we get from you we ripple off to our patients or our clients and and so forth mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's so well said that's right so I've said uh, it better <laughs> well i try sometimes um so if people aren't familiar for where they can find you i mean one how dare they but also mm-hmm. where can they find you on social media yeah my main thing my main platform is instagram and my handles at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, moves all one thing, like race car. You can spell it both ways, very palindromic. Uh, but the, yeah, that's, that's where I do most of my engaging. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I do have a TikTok, haven't used it yet, but the, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, that's me. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.